Blog Talk Radio. Press Show, part of the BookSpeak Network with your host, Tori Gates. The battle for a lost way of life, the history of a time conqueror's wish remains secret, and the will of a young heroine to search her past. These are the elements of Full Moon Rising, the debut novel on Perspective Press by T.M. Becker, who joins us today. T.M., welcome aboard. Thank you, Tori. Thank you very much for having me. Sure. Uh, Now, for those who wonder, I first met our guest through a monthly writers group here in the mid-state of Pennsylvania about eight years ago. And if I remember correctly, as we were sharing uh, our works, our, our stories, our poetry, and that sort of thing, I believe you were presenting a, a very early version of Full Moon Rising to us. And uh, it, would I be correct in my recollection? Absolutely. It was the probably the first draft I think <laughs> I think you were there very early on um, when I had, was just new to the group and although it's gone through many uh, revisions since then the material in the book was all there at that time mm-hmm. and I do remember um, thinking about that beginning as uh, we uh, got to meet uh, the heroine Arabella and uh, get that first look through the door into the land of Arturia. It was really, um, it, was, it was kind of intriguing to me because I was trying to think of where I could reference that. And uh, as you say, if it was there, well, let's begin with the roots of Full Moon Rising and this, this place that you've created. Now, you say you have the tools in place already, but what really sparked it? Um starts the book or started the idea for the uh, for the novel let's let's start with the very beginning <laughs> um so i i got the idea for this book when i was pregnant with my currently 12 year old son um for mm-hmm. some reason i have discovered that um pregnancy hormones make me extremely creative um, okay. so I kind of, uh, my brain goes into overdrive and I, I would get insomnia as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so in these nights when I'm laying awake, uncomfortable, I would get these ideas. Um, and I also, um, during that pregnancy read two books, which were key influences to this novel and to how I wrote the novel and actually the idea for it. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. One of them, one of them is the Thief by Megan Whalen Turner, which is a fantastic uh, fantasy book that was actually a Newber- Newbery Honor book. Uh, probably lots of people are familiar with that. Uh, she has a couple sequels to it as well. And mm-hmm. in that book, the main character 
is telling the story from his perspective. So it's written in first person, just like Full Moon Rising is. Mm-hmm. But in that book, the um, the narrator is unreliable. He is not telling you the whole story. And I loved the way uh, Ms. Turner developed that book and developed that story and the characters and the way he was hiding things from you the whole way through. Um, mm-hmm. So the, that translated into Full Moon Rising where it's not that the, ante- that the protagonist, Arabella, is hiding things from the reader. In my book, the reader figures things out or hopefully should figure things out um, before Arabella does. So it's sort of sort of turned that idea on its head. She is I, somewhat I, I an unreliable so. narrator, but not in the same way. Yes, I, I felt that Arabella was was trying to be sort of forthright with, with her her thoughts and her feelings, but yes, you could tell that she was still searching. She was still... That's very clever. She was sort of digging in certain ways, and it was sort of looking back into her past and what she was being taught by her mentor and and all of them. You could tell it's like you're searching along with her, trying to think, okay, what really is happening? That's that's really cool. What what really is happening here? And a lot of it, of course, yes, a lot of it, of course, a lot of the the questions in this book have to do with her perception. And that was the second idea, the second Genesis. And that came the sort of the kernel of the idea came from beauty by Robin McKinley, which was actually published 40 years ago, the year I was born. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, in that book, of course, it's a retelling of beauty and the beast. Um, Mm -hmm. And in that book at the end, when beauty has, um, broken this spell and the beast has turned back into uh, a prince or a, a nobleman, whatever he is. Beauty refuses to marry him when he asks her initially because um, her perception of herself is that she is not beautiful. And mm-hmm. that was actually part of how she ended up with the nickname beauty. Uh, but she, uh, she refuses and the beast says, okay, um, well, let's find a mirror because she had lived for the entire year in his castle, enchanted castle, and of course there were no mirrors. So she mm-hmm. had a false perception of herself. So mm-hmm. my idea, the idea that I got was, well, so beauty looks in the mirror. Beauty doesn't have a proper image of herself because she doesn't have a mirror to look in. But what would happen to a young woman if when she looked in a mirror, it showed her a false reflection, that what she sees isn't the same as what other people see? How would that affect Mm -hmm. her? How would that affect her relationships with other people? So that was Mm -hmm. the basic kernel of the story idea. And then, of course, Mm -hmm. you go from there. (laughs) Well, and Arabella is such an intriguing character you it's like i can get where you're you've sort of found a template and i do see that arabella is sort of not seeing herself the the same way that i think other people do but tell us a little more about this character um how did she come to you uh how did she you know how did she visualize herself to you 
So I think a lot of a lot of the genesis of the idea for her character is that she's a girl constrained within the bounds of a society that oppresses women. Um, mm-hmm. But she's smart. She's intelligent. She lost her mother at a very young age, and her father is, you know, a. I'm. What's the right word to call him? Uh, he definitely prefers his son over her, and mm-hmm. he really has no time or place for her. She is uh, of noble birth uh, in Atreria, but her father is very destitute, so he has squandered any wealth that the family may have had in the past years. And then there's the political aspect where she is Etrurian, but Etruria is ruled by the Sardonians who conquered Etruria about 200 years earlier and waged a campaign against Etruria, um, military in style, but also one that enforced ignorance on the population, especially women. And a lot of that is due to the Sardonian's fear of magic. And that's what it comes down to is that they are incapable of doing magic themselves and they feared it, even though the Aturians as a whole are not really very magical. I describe them as having, you know, potions and simple magic. Nothing like what Arabella experiences later in the book through mm-hmm. the Latretans, which, of course, is also part of her heritage. So there's that those those things are going on. And there's a lot a lot with the, the three different Tretans, of course, live in the north and the Etrurians don't really know of their existence. They sort of forgotten about them because there's no correspondence between the two countries but that's where Arabella's mother came from and so Arabella has those magical abilities in her veins and it comes out in so many different ways but she doesn't understand it she doesn't see it and she lost Mm -hmm. her mother who was the only one who could explain these things to her and so she now, is forging thing. her way. Yes. I was, I'm not She's forging her way alone. Thinking, I was, <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. No, 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 no. You know, you're telling, your, you're telling the story. It's your story. Well, <laughs> I was just going to finish up with she's sort of stumbling through this, uh, her adolescence alone without anybody who can really explain to her sort of the mysterious things that happened to her. For instance, she mm-hmm. has dreams that she doesn't understand, um, mm-hmm. and, and nothing in which no framework. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Now the thing was, yes, it was like there was a couple of questions within all of that. Yes, uh, the Sardonians have this incredible fear of something, and there's the fear of what they do not understand. But and. Um, and without giving it away, they throw some very medieval accusations at Arabella. But the thing also is the magical experience that Arabella initially sees, and it seems like a lot of her folks around her have it, is that's very, as you said, it's very simple magic. Um, some call it kitchen magic. Some call it just the, 
there's any different matter of names for it, but it's not um, it's not the kind of thing that that a lay person would be afraid of or confused of. It's not this mad conjuring. It is really very simple stuff. And, and tell us a little more about how Arabella obviously has some intuition. Where does she like? How does she know, or how does she get that feeling of there is something more to this picture? I think most of that is because, well, she knows that she can't explain everything. Like her mm-hmm. trunk, for instance, that her mother left her. You know, mm-hmm. every year she opens up the trunk and there's two beautiful new dresses in it. And they fit her. They fit her from the day she turns, you know, her fo- uh, day of her birthday until the day of her next birthday. And then they don't fit her anymore. <laughs> and so she recognizes that there's something special about this trunk. And the other mm-hmm. thing is when she puts the dresses on, they change. They change. She puts the dress on and it morphs into something that would be appropriate for whatever occasion it is that she is going to, uh, you know, if she's going to school, it looks like a proper school dress. If she's going anywhere. So she recognizes that the trunk is magic, but she can't ever talk about it because magic is such a, such a subject that obviously ends up landing her in deep trouble um, Mm -hmm. partway through the book. And now, an interesting thing, before I get into some of these other characters, um, when it came to the creation of Arabella, is she, did you draw on anyone that you know without naming any names? Or is she made up of different individuals? Or, or how did this this um, leading character come come to pass? I wouldn't say that she's based on anyone in particular. Mm-hmm. Characters when I sort of envision them, they, that perhaps, perhaps there's a certain amount of idealism that goes into the creation of characters. Um, like for instance, that, you know, your, your antagonists are bad and perhaps that you, you portray those uh, bad traits amplify those and so when it comes to to, when I deal with characterization I pull different traits both in myself and other people or you know in an ideal human not necessarily in um, anyone specific that Mm -hmm. probably is not necessarily true when it comes to um a character that I created in my sequel. He starts mm-hmm. out as a 12-year-old boy, and he very much resembles my sons at different stages in their lives. So there's definitely mm-hmm. the personality quirks that I see in my boys um, come mm-hmm. out in him. Arabella, she's she's probably the type of girl that I would have wanted to be um, like the best parts of her would be have been the person that I would have liked to be when I was her age Um, Mm -hmm. and perhaps could have wished that I had been able to 
be more like her than I was like myself. I think I think that when when authors create characters, there's always some basic kernel of truth at the center of the character's core. But of course, we manipulate them in the way that we need in order to create our story. Mm-hmm. And the thing, too, is what's good about Arabella is that she is not a perfect individual. This is someone who, being 15, and what I, re- what I can remember about my being 15 was feeling very incomplete. And I think some of that obviously has to do with a lack of maturity or as you're growing into yourself, all of the changes that a person goes through. And that's something that's really important to remember, isn't it? It is. Obviously, characters have to change. They can't remain static or, you know, they're not interesting. Um, A a large portion of character development is how the – how your characters change but that that's true to real life if we stayed static throughout our lives we <laughs> would not we wouldn't have learned anything um mm-hmm. and i think i think all humans regardless of your beliefs you're looking to better yourself and looking to change for the better and improve our character improve in wisdom and all those characters' traits, humility, um, compassion. We want, mm-hmm. we, want to, we want to be able to correct our faults, and I think we'd all like to be able to think that we can. Of course, the first issue is recognizing what our faults are. And Arabella, in some ways, she has trouble seeing what those are. Um, mm-hmm. because Yes, there's that certain headstrong nature of her, and in a way, and in a way, that's that's an important thing because, with your nation being pretty much conquered and being pushed around, there's a lot of people. The average person might just put their head down, go along to get along, but she's being also pulled by the force that says you cannot live like that. Yes, she is very much a child of the society that she lives in, but at the same time, she rebels against the status quo. She wants better for herself. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's sort of just a yearning in, in her that, you know, no, my mother wouldn't have wanted this for me. Whatever, whatever this is, whatever reality that she experiences, she's like, no, there's more. There has to be more. There has to be something different. And that's why she Mm -hmm. rebels and she's not supposed to learn uh, Latrian, the language that she studies, because it's the language that all magic books are written in. And so it's Mm -hmm. forbidden to Aturian women to learn it. Ironically, though, it is... It is. Um, I envision it very much as like a dead language. No one speaks it, uh, mm-hmm. somewhat like Latin in our country. And that, I think, was the, sort of my basic idea for the foundation of Latrian, this language that I invented. But at the same time, all the young noblemen's sons have to learn it because all the, the scientific uh, literature is written in it or, you know, any kind of any kind of um, legal documents or um, economic treatises, everything is written in Latrian. And so, of course, Mm -hmm. by forbidding women to learn this, 
they've condemned women to ignorance because mm-hmm. they can't read any of the great works, scientific, artistic, uh, anything. And Arabella says, no, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to put up with this. And she, of course, finds someone who agrees to teach it to her. But this starts because she finds two Latrian books hidden in her mother's magical trunk. Mm-hmm. We are speaking with T.N. Becker, author of the book Full Moon Rising. It is her debut on Perspective Press. This is the Brown Posey Press Show on the Blog Talk Radio Network. And, uh, Sam, I want to um, get into a little bit about um, one of the levels of the storyline that I came across, and I drew a, a very interesting parallel to it. Um, there was very much the good versus evil storyline. And I recall when I was a kid, I didn't really know much about it until I did some research on it. There used to be a thing in the comic world called the Golden Age of Comics, and somebody pointed it out in an explanation that those were the days when the good guys were really good and the bad guys were just plain loathsome. And I'm getting the feeling that the invaders and the conquerors, the Sardonians, are not exactly the nicest guys, even in their best moments. Tell us a little about Sardonia. We, we already know what they're afraid of to some extent, but what about their history and what brought them in? Um. I think I went into the history a little bit in the book, but I do have a lot more in my head about them. I also have a companion book to the series planned that um, deals with the Sardonians about 200 years earlier, right before they conquer, um, they conquered the Aturian mainland. But the mm-hmm. Sardonian homeland is an archipelago of islands to the south. Um, Basically, they ran out of space on their islands, and so they got a foothold into Etruria, and then from there, they they moved up through Etruria, and they <laughs> conquered the nation. Mm-hmm. They are um, warlike. Um, have you? I'm sure you've played your share of. Uh, <laughs> of um, computer games, maybe like Civilization, uh, Sid Meier's Sid, uh, whatever, Civ, or there's some mm-hmm. others as well, Age of Empires. And there's always the little descriptors that describe the different countries, and one is like warlike and aggressive. And that's, that's mm-hmm. how you could describe the Sardonians. They're warlike, they're aggressive, and they are um, very much ethnocentric, not interested mm-hmm. in, um, in, they're not interested in absorbing the countries, the country that they conquered. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, so but they, Alexander the, the Great, whenever he mm-hmm. uh, set out to conquer Persia, his, he had all his princes or his uh, army leaders, including himself, Marry Persian princesses. Uh, it was it was his way of abs- absorbing the Persian culture. Um, mm-hmm. But the Sardonians aren't like that. Two hundred mm-hmm. years after conquering Etruria, they're still two very separate people. It's the Etrurians 
and the Sardonians. And the Sardonians Mm -hmm. are only really interested in subjugating the Etrurians. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting, too, that they are very resistant. Um, Not an exact parallel to Alexander. The Vikings, um, quite often when they conquered lands or they moved into them, quite often they found themselves uh, adapting and just sort of absorbing themselves into the, the local population where they picked up some of the customs, some converted to Christianity, some just found that they could not go any further, and so they had to stay, and in many cases became a part of, of the land they're in. But the Sardonians are so resistant to this. They are very resistant to that. Um, in In my mind, it's what makes them so obstinate about magic because mm-hmm. normally when new peoples conquer uh when new people conquer uh you know an existing land when they sweep across it a lot of times they'll pick up things along the way mm-hmm. Sardonians weren't aren't like that they really don't have any interest in the finer aspects of Etrurian culture not their architecture not their music not their art the only thing they really adopted um, wholeheartedly was the Etrurian game of kings, which I mm-hmm. created for this book. Um, I view it as like a chess-like game, but it has more pieces. Mm-hmm. It's a 10 by 10 board instead of an 8 by 8 board. So it has basically the same setup of pieces with two extras. Um and that the game, although it's briefly mentioned in this book, uh, it plays a larger part in the later series. Mm-hmm. But it's one of the few things that the Sardonians play. It's one of the few things that they did from Etrurian culture. And I think it's very telling that one of the only things that they adopted was a game from Etruria. <laughs> Something that they and could that is bet an interesting on. Thing. Yeah, and it's like it's like, and and it's, um, but as you say, that seems to play that seems to have played upon their minds just a little bit, either for the amusement of it or perhaps the comp- the competitive aspect of the game might have excited them. So you never know. Yes, and the game, of course, is is warlike. You are taking you're taking other pieces other pieces. You're capturing the king, um, and that appealed to them. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I have to ask uh, now, moving back to Arabella and her teaching, I was fascinated by, is it Fabius or Fabius? The man who Fabius teacher. is how I say Fa- it. Fabius. Okay. Yeah. I was fascinated by him. He's an almost shadowy character. What can you tell us, without giving it all away, about this man? Well, he was a professor in the capital city, well, in the Sardonian capital city uh, of Pithark. He was a professor at a university. His job, of course, is to educate the young minds, both of uh, Sardonians and Etrurians. And then he was disgraced. Um, He was accused um, or it was hinted that he had taught or or had dealings with a woman that he was educating a woman in math and uh, mathematics and science, which is an absolute no no. Right. And so he's sort of sent away. Now he's um, old. He's very old, 
by the time he comes to be um, in Arabella's household, and the reason he has to come there, the reason he has this opportunity is because every nobleman must hire a tutor for his son because their sons need to learn science, mathematics, um, and Latrian. So even though her father can't afford it, he has to hire a tutor. And he ends up with Fabius. And there is a lot of question. Um, Arabella wonders because she she immediately recognizes how talented he is um, and that he is very accomplished in uh, Latrian. And, you know, he knows the language. He's fluent in the language. And she recognizes that immediately and wonders how her father was able to acquire the tutor. And then she learns that it's because of his disgrace. And I gave... Arabella and her family, I gave them an isolated location. Um, Etruria is situated south of a mountain range called the Oral Mountains. But mm-hmm. where where Arabella lives, they're just a little bit north of this mountain range, one of the few settlements north of the Oral Mountains. And that mm-hmm. essentially isolates them from the rest of Etruria. So basically... Mm-hmm. Fabius is able to come, and he kind of, it's not that he's hiding out for anyone to come chase him down, but it's a good place to get away from everybody else, get away from the people who might have uh, uh, caused him harm. Mm-hmm. Um, I purposely I purposely did that. I wanted them isolated from the rest of Etruria. And, of course, Arabella then... Uh, journeys through the country south uh, because she's put on trial. Mm-hmm. But I, I wanted thing, to have... Mm, mm. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you, you. Oh, okay. It's all you. Well, the, the reason I wanted that, the reason I wanted that, I wanted to actually have that isolation because I wanted to show that the people in Hayden, they actually in their core, still believe in magic because they live close to the wasteland and strange things happen in the wasteland. And so that gives them a bit of a different mindset from the rest of the people in Southern Etruria. And this is one thing that we can add is that just inside the uh, the, the map of, of this land uh, is, is so well put together. It, it, it is very familiar. It looks very familiar to me, but or at least the style of it. But what it does is that map gives us just enough of an idea. And if people refer back to it as they are reading Full Moon Rising, they're there and they're in this uh, in this place. Um, um, now, did did you draw the map yourself? Did you have someone else? Oh, that? I I did it's not nice draw that map. I have. A very, very talented friend um, named Jennifer Henry, who drew this map for me, and we had been talking about it for for years. I was like, "Oh, I want you to draw a map for me." And then, of course, when I got my publishing <laughs> offer, I was like, "You need to draw this map for me." <laughs> it was actually the last the last thing done. My publisher actually sent me an email. He's like, "Okay, we need the map," and I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> But it is, it is beautiful. It is gorgeous. I think this map, I love it 
so much. She's so talented. She did, did such a fabulous job. To, for her to be able to put, realize what was in my mind on paper, it was just, it was a, such a fun process to go back and forth because she would say, you know, this aspect, is that is that the way you envision this? And I would be like, well, not really. You know, this city needs to go over here and, and these the elements. And, but the way, the way we worked on that, I, I think that it turned out, it is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful map. And now this brings me into some of the um, some of the nuts and bolts that I want to ask about with you. Um, the style of this work, um, your wordplay of Arabella's storytelling is very distinctive. It reminds me of the Romantic period a little bit in terms of the use of the language. Um, what did you draw on? This gets us into some of the things you've read and some of the things that that really influenced you, but. Uh, you take us to this place, and you, you, when when Arabella is being dragged through the mud and being dragged through everything else, you take us right through that. Uh, what, 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 what did you draw on to, to get her there and to bring us with with her? Well, I was a prodigious reader um, mm-hmm. growing up. I was homeschooled for a lot of my uh, for a lot of my years, all mostly up through high school. Um, and I spend a lot of time reading. I read widely. I read classics. I read uh, fantasy. I read basically everything I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And so I have a very broad vocabulary. And it's, mm-hmm. <laughs> I would write. And I, people constantly were telling me, they were like, this, this, this is not within, you know, uh, a... Uh, young adults' vocabulary, and I was like, it was in my vocabulary when I was a young adult. I do recognize oh, that yes. perhaps that wasn't accurate, that perhaps my vocabulary is not a good example of what um, normal young adults' vocabulary is. But I don't have a problem with stretching readers' vocabulary. And I also, I don't use words in a way or at least I don't think I do, in a way that a reader wouldn't be able to figure out the con- the meaning from the context. Well, I went to the exact same thing you did. I'm, I'm, I'm not that much older than you, but uh, I do remember that um, when I read as I did growing up, and I didn't read as widely as I, I wished I had, but I always came across interesting words, and I got the exact same flack from my peers and from even older people of like, oh, he's using big words again. And it's like, well, what's wrong with that? <laughs> I love words. I love the English language. I, and I'm sure people with other languages would argue, but I think our language can be very elegant. I think it can be very beautiful. Yes. There's such a wide variety of, of words. It's like, you can almost, I can almost always find the perfect word to convey exactly what I'm looking for. And mm-hmm. I question whether other languages have that nuance of variety. I think, I think that they would all argue that they do. But there are so many different ways that you can say happy or excited or 
sad. There's so many different ways that you can describe that with very visually rich words. And, and it's one of my too. biggest yes. Well, one of my biggest issues when I'm critiquing other writers' work is that they use uninteresting verbs. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that I tell people over and over. I'm like, you can do better than this. I'm like, you can do better than, like, he walked. Or to use that as an example. I'm like, how you know, tell me. With a verb, don't add adverbs to describe it because that just becomes garbage writing then. I'm like, use a verb, a strong verb, a verb that shows me exactly what it is, what kind of motion it is that you're talking about. And you can use that in, you know, in any variety of um, aspects. And so it's one of the things that I would like to think, I'd like to think that my writing is rich with strong verbs that, that really convey a picture, whether it's a, a, pic, a mental picture of exactly how things are happening or a picture of the emotional state of the characters. I would like to think that I am able to convey that with my words. Mm. Well, I think you do. And it's interesting that you're talking about the way that we can use words and that to try to find the different ones. A problem I've often had myself is is being repetitive with words, and so a thesaurus has become an important tool for me to look at and think the exact same thing. It, it becomes like instead of a dictionary, I use a thesaurus, and I'm like, because I can I know the meaning of these words, but it's like this is repetitive. This does not work. And then you find that other word, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, I know. And it's like, and you know the word, you know it, and you've used it. But you forgot about yes, it. Yes, one of my one of my favorite functions on Word is Shift F seven. I use it all the time because it pops up the thesaurus and I'm like, Yes, that's <laughs> the one I'm thinking of. I just couldn't come up with it myself and there it is. And um but I I rarely I rarely lack for words when I'm writing. Um and I I don't know about you, but I love editing. I am I'm often uh read uh, people's posts, uh, authors' posts on Instagram, and they're like, oh, I finished the writing, you know, the fun part, and now I have to start editing. And they're like, ugh. And I'm like, what? Like, I love editing. Like, I love that. <laughs> the writing part is torturous, like getting things down onto paper. Part of the reason for me that it is so torturous is because I, I am – I cannot just sit down and spew stuff out onto a page. Um, Perhaps with Full Moon Rising, I did, but that was 12 years ago, and my writing style has changed a lot in that time period. I've had a lot Mm -hmm. more children, and I have a lot less time (laughs) to write. So Mm -hmm. I, I, I brew things a long time in my head. And so when I sit down... My first drafts are very finished. They're very polished, Mm -hmm. very readable, very finished. But it takes me a long time to write them. But I love editing because you get to just, oh, get to go back. And I've been guilty of I'll sit down and I'll read and I'll go, did I write this? This is so good. Did I write this? (laughs) (laughs) 
And to get that feeling, to get, get that sense is an incredible thing. No, I agree with you. Editing to me is writing because you are reading and you're rewriting as you go. And I do exactly the same thing with every edit of any story that I do is when I start tearing it apart, it's like I'm just rewriting it. The, the, the main thing, the main part of the job is already done because, yes, the same thing, getting that first one out. And I do exactly the same. I allow a story to cook in my head for a long period of time just to make sure that, okay, does this really make sense? Does this have the direction I want? And if it doesn't, I'm not going to do it. But, yeah, it's, and that first one, yes, that first one can be painful, but you get there. <laughs> well, what is your writing style? Do you outline Oh, yes. Um, basically, I do two outlines when I begin. I have character sketches. I, have, I will have pages and pages of character sketches, and the sketches will be everything from the names, their ages, what do they look like. Uh, then it will be uh, their distinguishing characteristics. You know, what do they wear glasses? What nationality are they? Do they have any unusual uh, there behaviors? There are so many people that write that way. There are so many people that outline, and I am absolutely not an outliner. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, 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 think, I think for me, I, I call myself a quilter. Um, okay. And I'll explain that. In other words, I develop these fully fleshed vignettes, like mm-hmm. – they they're fully like this this scene that's just fully fleshed and sometimes I write it down or sometimes I just take notes so I remember it and then so I have kind of these tent poles then of the story and I stitch them together as I write so I stitch these narrative pieces together sometimes of course as you write the direction changes you do something and you're like oh well now this has to happen because I did this or whatever. But still those tent poles that, that are sort of, of, of things that are already sort of fully fleshed, I write those out uh, and I'll and – so I guess you could say that's the only outlining I do. Like once this idea is, is fully fleshed out, then I'll, I'll write it down and say, okay, this is – I'm headed here. But then I have to order them. I put them in order. Mm-hmm. But as far as like creating outlines and like character sketches – all of that, all of that stuff is in my head. None of it's written down. Well, I, yeah, and it's uh, for me a lot of it is I have to have it written down because I will forget, or at least I'll forget some of the things that I need to keep. But oh, the temple thing is familiar because yeah, I do that with like my, my story. Everything's in there. <laughs> yeah, it's like my story. For me, it's a, I also write my second document as a storyline, and that storyline is basically okay. It's like little, yeah, same thing. It's treatments. Chapter one, we're going to do this. Chapter one, we will be doing this. Chapter three, chapter four, et cetera. But of course, that doesn't happen because point A to point B is going to have a point double A, a point A, B, a point A, B, C, and then maybe we'll get down there. And it's the same thing. It's like, okay, now I have to insert this. And, okay, this doesn't work here. Where do we put it? And then sometimes it's like, okay, let's move the blocks around a little bit. And then suddenly you're, it's like you're playing Tetris. You're fitting chapters in so they make sense. <laughs> I, find, I find that there's a little bit of that sort of going back and, oh, I need to mention this 
this whatever. I need we to can. mention this earlier in the story, so I need to find a spot to stick this in and, and you know, add mm-hmm. this, these three lines about something that happens later. Or, you know, and so as the story becomes more and more finished and closer and closer to the end, there's those things that's, that come up, and I'm like, oh, I have to do this. But it's amazing how, like, fully fleshed some of my stories, maybe not every single one, are in my head before I ever put them down on paper. Just like, like mm-hmm. I have this whole sort of, I mean, obviously not all the details, but all the major point kind of all, all there. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know why this happens, but it happens. I'll figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's an interesting question, too, of, of uh, the way that you set things up. Um, in terms of getting signed with Prospective Press, how did you come across them, or how did they find you? Well, I spent a lot of time and energy in getting an agent, and mm-hmm. uh, I did. He actually was uh, he actually represented Tamora Pierce, who is of course a well-known um, young adult author, written mm-hmm. many books, and he signed me. Um, but then he couldn't sell my book. Now, mm-hmm. I would argue that he didn't present it to very many people, very many publishers, mm-hmm. but it's kind of a really slow process. The other yes, thing about him is that he was kind of on his way out. He was old. I think he was, I mean, older in the, in far as, as for an agent uh, in this market, he was over 60. And I, I felt, I started to feel that he just didn't have the contacts and the pool maybe he had before. Does that, does that make mm-hmm. sense? Like he, he just, I think perhaps the industry had in some ways passed him by. It, it does so, happen. It's, it seems that yeah. way. So two oh. years ago, two years mm-hmm. ago, I... I emailed him and I said, look, I said, would it be okay if I start submitting on my own to small presses that I can submit to without an agent? Mm -hmm. And he said, yes, that's okay. So I found Mm -hmm. a list of small independent presses and I started submitting. And the... um, I went into labor with my 14-month-old son on March 11th, mm-hmm. and we were at Carlisle Hospital, and my daughter, my daughter was there. One of my daughters was there. My husband was there, and she had a soccer tournament the next day. My husband said, "It's getting late. It's like almost 11 o'clock," and he's like, "I have to take her home." So he takes her home, and he comes back. And he walks into the to the delivery room and he goes, so, he says, you got a offer of publication. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, in labor. And he tells me I got this offer of publication. I was like, oh, what? So that was very exciting and very memorable. And um, then my son was born two minutes after midnight on March 12th. So... Wow. So that was that was really really exciting. Just like you know, wow, this culmination of just 
a long time. So I believe I had submitted to the press that gave me the offer uh, in the January, uh, in, in about January. Perspective Press was on that list. I actually ended up not going with the press that I got an initial offer with. Um, right. About a week later, I got an offer from Perspective Press, and I decided to go with them. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it was the right decision or not, uh, I'll never know, but that was the decision I made. I, I really like Perspective Press. They um, had valuable editing support, which is something that I really wanted. I wanted to have mm-hmm. that that um, the 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 support that an editor can give you an outside perspective. I had edited uh, Full Moon Rising myself, you know, with different suggestions from different people, but I think it's I think it becomes difficult to get that sort of stand back look at it. Um, on your own, especially when you've been dealing with the same novel for 12 years, which was... Well, that is very true. And the, the important thing really is, is finding that editor or that outside proofreader, whether you pay them or not, you need that, per, that one person that is not going to pull their punches on you. Well, and the most important thing that I've discovered when it comes to editing, no matter who it is, is that you trust them. You have to trust them. You have to trust that they're giving you good advice. Right. And 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 it's it's hard to find somebody like that. It's hard to find somebody that you can say, yes, this person's suggestion is a good suggestion. You know, it, this is mm-hmm. something that will help this book. And I really felt um, sort of on the big picture suggestions that um, Chip, the first editor from Perspective Press, had. I was like, oh, yeah, all of these are really good ideas. You know, there was nothing super drastic. I, um, you know, there were some points where he wanted me to up the tension. There were some mm-hmm. other point, he other places where he wanted me to um, – help explain some of Morty's character development a little bit better. So I added uh, a scene or two there to sort of make, make his transition from disgruntled apprentice into, um, you know, (laughs) how he commits the betrayal that he does make that a bit more believable. And so the, and those are the types of things that I think you can't always see on your own. Part of the reason for that, especially when you've dealt with a book for so many years, you have this fully fleshed idea of someone's character in your head doesn't necessarily translate onto the paper, onto the page. And so to have that outside perspective, to have someone able to give you that outside perspective that says, no, what what you see in your head doesn't translate to the page here, that's that's mm-hmm. one of the most important things, I think. Well, I'll tell you, as we start to wrap up here, I must ask the next question of what is next for Arabella and uh, the the uh, the fellow who has uh, suddenly sort of at first didn't seem to like her, now seems to, what's happening, what's next for Arabella and the gang? Well, um, 
I have two sequels fully written to Full Moon Rising. But (laughs) um, less than a month before Full Moon Rising came out in January, my husband pulled me aside and he said, said, you need to write book 1.5. And I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the sequel that I have is called The Imposter Queen. And because Arabella and her, um, the person that she falls in love with are, you know, headed towards marriage, she's no longer a viable main character for a young adult book. Um, Because, Mm. of course, young adult main characters need to be young adults. And she's 17, 18, so she's moving out of that range, especially once you get married. That's kind of like not really a viable main character. So I had switched to a 12-year-old boy. I love his character. He's great. I've had so much fun writing him. But The Imposter Queen is also written in first-person perspective, but from his perspective. And my Mm -hmm. husband and my teenagers said it's too jarring to have two books in a series right in a row, both in first person, but where you just Mm -hmm. totally switch characters. So it's it's very suggesting a bit of a transition. That's right. So they said you got to write a transition book between them. (laughs) So that's what I'm working on. Um, I am dubbing it The Princess and the Orphan. So the first half of the book is Arabella dealing with palace intrigue and preparing for her wedding. The second half, so it's told from her perspective in third person. The second half of the book is told from the orphan's perspective, also in third person. So if you look at the scope of the books, it would be Arabella first person, Arabella third person, Errant third person, and then switching to Errant first person. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited so, about this book, although it's nothing like I've ever done before because I had a setting and I had characters <laughs> to start with rather than an idea. But I'm really pleased with how it's turning out. <laughs> it, yeah. it is. Well, it is. Well, now that uh, you've done it, um, first of all, um, before I ask the big question, I need to ask a small question, which is where can we find uh, your book um, and uh, where can we find you? My book is available on Amazon. It's Full Moon Rising by T.M. Becker. It's also available um, at my publisher's website, which is Perspective Press. It's www.perspectivepress.com. You can mm-hmm. find me uh, on my website at www.tmbecker.com. And I also have purchase links for my book on my website. And there is a subscribe button on my website. Uh, all you have to do is give your email and you will receive a companion short story that I wrote. It's called The General's Horse. And it was created from material that I deleted from Full Moon Rising. It's a scene that just ended up not fitting. And I turned it into a short story. And I'm really excited at how it turned out. So mm. if you go up Get the free I'm sorry. All 
all the all the all the subscribing is is I can hopefully in the future send you an email and let you know when the next book comes out. I'm also on Instagram at t.m.becker and Twitter at sifbecker. It's T S I Becker. All right. And uh, one last question. Um, what advice do you give to people who are thinking about taking this plunge or may have just gotten started? What can you tell them? As far as writing or publishing? Writing. Getting it, getting that, that step forward into it. I think it is to have a beta, beta reading group. Um, I know I couldn't have done this without the the writers group the it's the central pennsylvania writers group um they were a huge help to me for a number of years Mm -hmm. find people that you can trust to look at your work but the most important thing i think to be a good writer to read a lot and to edit a lot Mm -hmm. i think that the best way are we out of time well, we're getting toward it, but no, go ahead. Finish up, please. please. I think the best way to become a better writer is to edit other people's writing um, because it, it helps to show you you need to work on in your own writing. Mm-hmm. Very well then. Tam Becker, thank you so much. I'm glad we hooked up again after all these years. I congratulate you on this first one, and I wish you the best of luck. Thank you so much, Tori. Thank you so much for having me. It was lots of fun. All right. Our guest has been T.M. Becker, author of Full Moon Rising on Perspective Press. This has been the Brown Posey Press Show with your host, Tori Gates. Check out my works live from the cafe and A Moment in the Sun, both of which can be found at brownposeypress.com. This is the BookSpeak Network. 